there, welcome to Your Basket is Empty. My name is Tim Richardson and I'm your host. On today's episode, I sit down with a friend of mine, uh, Hannah Sumano, and we talk about her time at Unilever and being part of the leadership team at Kasha, uh, an African-based e-commerce platform for women's health products. Before we get into it, I want to give a big shout out to my sponsor for this episode, LTV+. What's LTV+. They're a customer experience outsourcing company that provides outsourced customer experience teams for e-commerce brands. They build and manage your own dedicated team of live chat agents, customer support agents, social media moderators, back office support, and content translators. Looking to grow your brand internationally? Want to outsource your customer experience in any time zone language? And check them out at ltvplus.com. And just for my listeners, they are providing a 10% discount off the first three months. All you need to do is key in the promo code EMPTYBASKET2020. Enjoy the episode. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Let's go back in time. You left Durham Uni with a Bachelor in Arts and a number of languages. What were you thinking at that period of your life? It's such a good question. And I don't think I knew. So you're right, I was studying French, Spanish and Italian at university as an art student. And, you know, postgraduate life looked like a big, scary ocean of many prospects. And I sort of started stumbling across the tech startup scene, which was the seed that has kind of led me to this point I'm at today. Um, Because in the UK, if you study languages, you have a year abroad. So I was totally clueless and went to Paris and got an internship at a tech startup. And I truly don't think I knew what that meant at that moment in my life. And then what I quickly learned is that startups are just people building a company, like small groups of people building a company. So I started working in a tech startup in Paris and one thing led to the next from there really. But yeah, back when I was at university, I was just you know an art student, loved reading, loved speaking languages. That was pretty much it. And what did the tech startup do? We were making mobile apps for hotels. So the startup's still going, called LoungeUp. Mm. And it's pretty cool, actually. They're, they're building a product that allows, if you're a hotel or a hotel manager, then you encourage your clients, your customers to download the LoungeUp app. And then you can speak to them directly through the app. So it's like a kind of CRM tool, increases loyalty. You get to have like a little city guide in the app too. So they have on their phone all of the local recommendations and stuff. So it was a neat way for me to segue into the tech world without knowing what it meant. And um, yeah, I, I still think that that idea of like building loyalty through digital experiences that are personalized is obviously something, you know, the whole industry is still working around the clock to try and crack. Yeah, that's really interesting. And was this pre-Airbnb or was Airbnb around? This was just at the dawn of of, of uh, Airbnb times. Yeah, I remember in our same incubator, there was a company that was um, basically starting to work around the key drop-off for Airbnb. So, you know, the whole industry that's popped up since Airbnb, you know, startups that are saying, you can drop off your keys here. There's mm. sort of that layer in between the owner and then the people who stay in the yeah, place. Yeah, like the concierge or the cleaning and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that's it, the cleaning and stuff. And I remember in our incubator, there was a company that was trying to do that, a startup building out that. And at the time, we weren't really sure whether they'd be successful or not because we, we thought, I'm not sure this Airbnb thing is going to be a Yeah, it's going to be a flop. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the joke yeah. is. Yeah, the joke's on us. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Okay, so um, at what point then did you make your way to uh, the gates of Unilever? How did that come about? The gates, the yeah, pearly the white pearly gates. pearly white gates, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So when I was on my year abroad, I created a Twitter alter ego called Tech Han. She's still alive. So it's on Twitter, at tech underscore Han. And I just started really exploring the tech scene and then you know tech crunch disrupt yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. right yeah so they hosted some competition saying we're going to give away a ticket to tech crunch disrupt the tickets are like 1300 quid we're going to give away a ticket to whoever tweets us the best tweet and so i tweeted at them a haiku um and i won i what did the haiku say something about um like help the finalists and I got this free ticket to TechCrunch Disrupt and it was amazing I just was there surrounded by you know the movers and shakers in the tech world globally and and from that point onwards I started meeting a lot of people and I heard that a really cool graduate training program was this one called Business and Technology Management at Unilever and it was um, a sort of a management program that aimed to fast track people into senior leadership positions in the company without having to have prior technical experience because you know, I was there having my arts degree sort of in my back pocket, spending my time reading lots about magical realism and books. And I think that a lot of people from the arts struggle to imagine themselves in technology or like what that would look like for them. And I didn't know how to code. I still don't know how to code, but it's not really been an issue. Um, and yeah, found this graduate scheme called Business and Technology Management and applied for it and got it and it was a really amazing experience where for two years you're on this scheme with Unilever and the scheme is comprised of six month placements so every six months you switch roles in the company so I went from being like a technical program manager on massive global projects through to innovation roles that were much more about product management and brand building I spent half a year in Unilever Ventures, which is the venture capital arm of Unilever, which was an amazing experience to just meet a bunch of entrepreneurs and, you know, source a few deals. And it was this sort of, yeah, two-year rotational program that had me really opening my eyes at the world of corporate technology and startup technology and really innovation. And so do you... How did it work? The, the I get the concept right. So you're getting exposed to a whole bunch of different things within the company. Is it such that you uh, or they 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 um, encourage you to uh, decide on one of those and kind of follow it? Is that the kind of idea? Like, or or is it you end up doing something totally different after that kind of graduate program? How does it work? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think the goal of it which I agree with, is just to get as much different experience as you can in as short a time as possible. So, for example, for me, I had four completely different roles in four completely different locations. And to be honest, a lot of them, well, I'd say 50%, I didn't enjoy. And I came out of the other side saying, well, that's good, because at least I know now I don't want to do that. Um, And I think... I mean, it's definitely a really great program. They have schemes in marketing and supply chain. And it's something I still, I speak to students about now and really recommend this program because it just, I think the more things you try, the more you work out what's not right for you, as opposed to finding out what is right for you. Mm. I think it's more process of elimination. 
But I did come out of my graduate program was as I was nearing the end. I knew that I liked the innovation stuff. I knew that I loved the brands and the digital, um, the digital experiences. And a role opened up in the global e-commerce team. Uh, it was an innovation role titled global innovation manager. So it was a really exciting role to play a part of like an internal start startup team, <coughs> excuse me, an internal startup team um, that helps Unilever like innovate at a global level and come up with new ways to engage with consumers directly. So that was what I did after the graduate training program. I joined in this management role. Interesting. So talk me through that. Were you, was Unilever doing market research and um you know seeing what was out there um um nurturing an idea and trying to spin it out internally or was it more you were creating toolkits for other teams within unilever to do that it was both so one of the projects i did while i was in that role is launch a new direct to consumer skincare brand for unilever so based off of you know market insights and um sort of identifying white spaces Unilever had realized that personalization, direct-to-consumer were emerging trends, big emerging trends. And so we launched our own direct-to-consumer skincare brand called Skinsay. Um, that was really sort of a minimum viable product to test and see if it worked. And the goal with Skinsay is, is you arrive on the website and you fill in a bunch of information about your lifestyle and how much you sleep and what your skin type is like. And then it personalizes a skincare regime for you and sends you products bi-monthly. Mm -hmm. um, so we launched that to test and see if it worked. And I guess I was like a product manager on that project. And it did work. So now they've launched the brand officially in the US. It's still going, which is really exciting. So that was kind of the internal innovation, new brand creation, but equally in that role, you know, Unilever is working hard, as I'm sure a lot of these old CPG companies are, to stay relevant. And so it was also about building digital toolkits and helping established brands innovate further um, along the line. And there are some really um, exciting brands at Unilever, something like Ren Skincare, which mm -hmm. joined the portfolio, I think, within the last five to six years. And was involved in you know crafting out a new digital strategy for Ren Skincare, which is amazing because actually now it's doing incredibly well. It's built a new digital brand that is all about sustainability and um, that is really just digital first, which I think it's taken a lot of more established brands a long time to evolve into to get that digital first thinking as opposed to just spinning up a website and thinking that that's going to be enough. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, right? Having the inertia of something like Unilever with all of the resource and research and supply chain and logistics to uh, kind of um, take on a brand like Ren Skincare and um, let them run and continue doing what they're doing with that inertia behind them, I think is a really interesting concept. I mean, it, it's, it's a classic one, right? Like Innocent getting bought by Coke and that sort of concept, I think is 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 interesting. So, did, did uh, with the the brand that you're involved in, um, was it kind of end to end, or there wasn't any white labeling or anything like that? It was like you you guys at Unilever were sourcing the product from the very source. It would be like the end to end through to the consumer. Yeah, right. It was really one of the first projects of its kind for Unilever. In fact, I think it was the first project of its kind, and it was 
truly end to end. So from all of the innovation that was held within Unilever's R&D facilities, which are you know super advanced, the R&D team came up with some products and um, you know formulas that would work well for this premium skincare brand. And you know we went through right from the early innovation stage, from brand conception, and um, then sort of you know whiteboarding and prototyping, and and then through to launch. And so once we were launching and testing out, I remember the early days when we were getting like one order a day, you know, and we were running all of the social media and we were managing the email marketing with all of our customers. And it really was the first of its kind because, you know, these big CPG companies where the brands um, are almost entities of their own often, you know, historically have outsourced a lot of that work, like the social media management and the marketing and the brand people are left managing that stuff. So this was a really amazing way for Unilever to actually bring together these cross-functional teams of people have one individual from research and development, one from brand, one from, you know, IT, one from um, e-commerce and create this mini startup really that was able to operate autonomously. We had our own P&L. Um, and so I think that these kind of projects are really exciting and probably down the line will become much more frequent um, as these big companies need to innovate to stay stay alive yeah i mean you touched on an interesting point before and that's the relevance right and i suppose that is a key aspect or strategy for a big company to stay relevant is to do more stuff like this okay uh i want to talk about kasha so tell me all about it how did you come to be involved what are you doing what's the mission etc Sure. So while I was at Unilever in this global e-commerce role, I got connected with the CEO and co-founder of Kasha, a lady called Joanna Bickshall. And she was speaking to Unilever to try and get some advice about e-commerce since she was building her own e-commerce brand and company in East Africa. The mission of Kasha is to build e-commerce for women's health, personal care and well-being. So it's a platform that really has products for um, for anything to do with a woman's needs. So it was founded on the, the knowledge that unfortunately access to menstrual care products and contraception in developing countries can be limited and so the company was reborn from that idea how can we build a way for women in urban or rural areas to get access to menstrual care products to contraception but it's it's grown significantly from that point and you know now we also have a lot of beauty products and hair care products and a whole pharmacy and you know we our customers want all sorts of products you know from Fenty right the way down through to you know your day-to-day kind of basic necessities um but while I was at Unilever I was speaking with Joanna and I was really taken by this idea that she was working on building an e-commerce platform for women um less privileged and so yeah I left Unilever to go and join her on and her team um at that moment in time Kasha was just operating in Rwanda in East Africa and the co-founders wanted to expand into Kenya and knew that Kenya was a going to be a different kind of market to Rwanda. It's more digitally advanced, slightly more sophisticated, more smartphone penetration and so on. So we really had to build the e-commerce experience from the bottom up. So I went out there um, to help them really redesign and overhaul the whole user experience, the e-commerce product and to launch Kasha in Kenya in 2019. So 
I've been with Kasha now for about 15 months and um, went from that original audit phase right the way now to sort of managing a wonderful team of individuals across e-commerce and product. And really my role there is to keep the user experience amazing, to grow our user base, to increase conversion rate, retention, um, and to ensure that Kasha as a brand is something that women can really identify with in Rwanda and in Kenya and setting up for success for the future too. Um, and I'm going to just turn off my site there. That's very rude of me. Um, given that you were involved in the inception and um, execution of a brand here in London and then you did the same thing in Africa, <laughs> what were the differences and challenges? I mean, I'm thinking like logistics is, is, is crazy over there would I be right in saying that or is it actually simpler like what, what what were the differences yeah it's a really good question I think that it's true that infrastructure can be more of a challenge um, in Africa that's probably why Amazon aren't there yet so Amazon aren't operating in Africa at the moment um, I guess let's watch that space who knows but the reality is is yeah that logistics piece is, is a challenge and so when Kasha first launched in Randa the team built the end-to-end operations so and still to this day we employ full-time Kasha riders so they have little motorbikes so when we get an order placed on our website um, or through USSD which is like a kind of SMS based ordering capacity that you can have Um, and we also have an agent model which is imagine like the Avon um, agents who go around we also have cashier agents in more remote areas so whether we get an order placed through the website or through ussd or through an agent we then pick and pack the order in our own warehouse and um, we have then a set of riders who will come and pick that up and deliver it straight to the customer all in-house not outsourcing all in-house wow. and randa yeah exactly so it was a big feat obviously you can't rely on third-party logistics in you know, in countries where they're not really very mature themselves yet. But in Kenya, it was a bit of a different story. Um, you know, third-party logistics are more advanced. So there we've been able to rely on third-party drivers to deliver our orders. Again, we have a warehouse. So all of um, sort of the fulfillment is done in-house for us. But when uh, we get an order placed, we have sort of, yeah, a third-party who deliver that to our customer. But we really do own the end-to-end journey. Okay, without getting too bogged down in the technicalities of it, um, I heard uh, on on a podcast, I listened to the David McWilliams podcast. If anyone's out there, they should go and check it out. He's an Irish economist and he was in Africa not long ago and he was talking about... um, the uh talk about m-pesa m-pesa yeah m-pesa yeah what is m-pesa yeah it's a great question so m-pesa is basically mobile money and it um was born as an initiative or an innovation in kenya and in a simplified way what it means is that people have a wallet on their phones so kind of what monzo and all of these digital challenger banks are doing now m-pesa is like a stripped back version of that that doesn't depend on data. So you top up your M-Pesa account, which is affiliated to your phone number. So instead of having to have a bank account that is connected to, you know, a million points of data about your identity, it's just connected to your phone number and 
you then you kind of connect up with a identification um, at a local bank and then from then on you just have to top it up um, and so if you're in a market or in a store wherever you are whatever the total cost is that you need to pay you can basically just text people money so you don't have to have cash um, it's an amazing way for people you know living in more rural areas who not necessarily have access to um, you know ATMs to be able to keep their money topping up and to have that flow really smooth so it's it's meant that doing e-commerce in East Africa I think is is a lot a lot easier because people are already used to buying things through their phones yeah that's really interesting and you get like the more you use it the better rated you are right so the more and can you loan people money and stuff like that is that correct yeah you can you can send people money again you just have to text people basically so you can just text money to a number i've made the mistake once of sending money to the wrong number, wrong number. <laughs> yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah you yeah. can get it back um but that you have it, to go around to their house and tell yeah, them yeah, yeah, yeah you have yeah. to give them a call basically <laughs> yeah. please yeah. send me my money can you back? send me that money back please yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um so the you touched on the point before where kasha started off with uh female hygiene products kind of at its core and then you've added on um uh, peripheral offerings to that um, so what's it like as a, a multi-brand retailer I suppose in the context of being in Africa again I suppose I'm fixated on supply chain and logistics H- how does it work in terms of getting the other brands involved were they kind of coming to Kasha did you have to do some outreach how did that work yeah so it's been a bit of both I think you know, since we've been in Kenya, um, we were lucky that we'd already had sort of two years of operating in Rwanda behind us. And so big companies like Unilever and Johnson and Johnson and, you know, the others really like working with us because we're now a trusted partner. Um, we buy all of the stock that we house in our warehouses. One of the main challenges and one of the reasons why Kasha exists is because actually in developing countries, um, the products aren't always legit so you have a lot of counterfeit products on the market so someone might think that they're buying always pads um, but they're not they can be fake or the same with any kind of products or brands that we would be familiar with so um, one of the main notions of Kasha is that these are legitimate products these are quality products and so big CPG companies like working with us because they see us as a yeah, trusted distributor. But one of the other angles that we're really working on is to support you know, local entrepreneurs and independent brands and help independent brands from East Africa have access to a wider base of customers. So we do work with a number of really amazing brands from Kenya, from Rwanda, um, that run by, on the whole actually, female entrepreneurs and we've got a lot of even natural and organics brands on our platform. So it's kind of twofold. We try and obviously work with our sort of global multinational um, consumer companies, but also try and build the, those relationships with the smaller guys um, and help them, you know, expand their brands. And what's the problem with the counterfeit? Obviously, it's illegal. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> Is it because... Uh, the, the 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 products don't do what they say or they could potentially be harmful or is it just the fact that it's supporting an economy that is uh less than desirable and probably involved in a whole bunch of other illegal activity 
<laughs> Such a good question. <laughs> I guess it's both. Like if if I gave you, um, I don't know what soap you use or shampoo you use, but imagine like whatever's on the black market. You know, yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> always above board. Uh, yeah, you know, like I imagine. Oh, well, Unilever would be a good example. This is gonna uh, test my Unilever oh, knowledge. Let's say test. Dove. Yes. Yeah. Right. Dove. Okay. Unilever. Great. Well, let's say ten out of ten. Yeah, Done. Pass. Let's say it's it, it's 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 a Dove brand. Um, I mean. The reality is a lot of that stuff has got a lot of uh, stuff in it. And if it's not sourced from the right places, then exactly. it potentially could be actually dangerous, right? Yeah, exactly. And particularly if it's a female hygiene thing. Exactly, right. And so that's the issue with these counterfeit products is, you know, people are piggybacking off this brand that people in theory trust. But if it hasn't got sort of any backing, if the products or the ingredients haven't been checked or uh, by any quality assurance people or any testers, there could be absolutely anything in there. And when you think about personal care or healthcare, these are products that are going on your body, Mm, potentially mm. in your body. And so if they're not good quality or if they have nasty chemicals in or haven't been tested, that's a real problem. So I think it's, it's just absolutely imperative that people are getting what they think they're getting when they buy products. And Kasha tries to work to increase our own brand awareness as Kasha to get people buying stuff from us because unfortunately our our products, we trust them and we don't often trust the products that are on the market otherwise. I want to talk a bit more about your day-to-day. So you're currently working remotely. I am. How is that? Talk me through it. It's Maybe talk me through your day at the moment. What does it look like? Yeah. So my day at the moment, it's pretty varied because as Kasha, as a product organization, we have multiple different products. So we have the website and we have the USSD. And then when you think about what building a good product means, often it means increasing conversion rate and you know, increasing average order value and retention and those core e-commerce metrics. So I work on a lot of product development and ideation along those pillars. But the on the flip side, us being a social enterprise um, that works on a lot of really exciting initiatives, we also have some donors. So we get um, grant money and, for example, Bill and Melinda Gates are one of our donors. So we then get also initiatives to work on for our health donors that aren't necessarily tied to those core e-commerce metrics that you would normally think of like conversion rate or revenue. So as a product person, I've got to work on those e-commerce core metrics and then also work on building stuff that helps access to health information for women. And, you know, for example, at the moment we're working on some projects that are going to Um, enable women to find the right contraceptive method for them so really building quizzes and interactive tools that can help women understand you know the pros and the cons of different contraceptive methods and how frequently they should take them and where they can get um, these from which is us Um, so working on a bunch of different product innovations I manage some fantastic individuals in the team Um, they make my life so brilliant and that's a big part of my role is sort of people management and I guess yeah the remote thing you know it's probably with most tech companies and digital companies these days we have these flexible working cultures you know that's not just like in the UK um, that or the US like in you know, in Nairobi, we've got the same thing. So our company's pretty used to working remotely. We do a lot of Google Hangouts and it hasn't been a huge practical challenge being remote, but the thing that I miss is just being with the team and being in the office 
I am a you know extrovert person and I get a lot of energy off just being around people. So I very quickly joined a WeWork here in London, in London Fields, yeah. and I've been working there. Um, but yeah, I do miss that, but um, it's one of the sacrifices you make in any job. You wonder if, like, can you get everything at any given time, like the perfect job in the perfect place that is the right intellectual challenge. And for me, being in London, I'm kind of sacrificing that component of my job, the people side, which I do love. Yes, but so what's the what's the trade off to that being in London, where things are maybe a little bit easier, and uh, I don't know, there's nicer restaurants. I don't, I don't know what restaurants. <laughs> Nairobi like. has excellent restaurants. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah, seriously, some of the best sushi I've had. Um, I was in Nairobi from October 2018 through to July 2019, so almost a year. I lived out there, which was brilliant and sort of when I um, decided to stay on at Casha when I agreed that with the co-founders, it was on the premise that I would be based in Nairobi to launch the company and get it off the ground and build the team. But then for the second half of the year, I wanted to be based back in London and travel to Nairobi when necessary. Um, but yeah, for personal reasons, like yeah, I don't think my partner would have been really happy if I just set up shop in Nairobi permanently and um, you're right. There are good restaurants in London. There are. There are. Have you seen the Bill Gates thing on uh, Netflix or whatever it is? There's Which like a, one? I don't know. There's some sort of like doco. I feel like there's a million docos. <laughs> <laughs> Australian uh, doco on Netflix. Which one? Yeah. yeah. So uh, there's one. Uh, it's a little bit. Uh, I don't know if he directed it, but it's very all about Bill Gates. But Sounds it, well, you, it's good. Is 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 it, it, it? I don't particularly like they they interject like um, cartoon um, flashbacks. I'm not a huge fan of that. I definitely yeah. haven't watched this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, the thing that I took from it was uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation didn't quite understand how big it is and doing some amazing things, and that's really cool. He was like a child prodigy, like he he um, at the age of like eleven like um, uh, um, passed or, or came first out of his entire state for this particular maths competition. I didn't realise how um, much of a genius genius he was. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously everyone knows who Bill Gates is as people know who Steve Jobs is and all these kind of, you know, like the, the, these uh, right. uh, characters. But I didn't realise how, yeah, intelligent he was, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, my so my co-founders, the co-founders of Kasha, they met at Microsoft. So actually, there's a lot of Microsoft um, culture and philosophy at Kasha. And our current CTO is also ex-Microsoft. And, you know, I think that it is a phenomenal company. And any brains behind that are obviously... Yeah, kind of like probably were winning spelling bees or doing whatever when you're 11. But I think that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a really wonderful thing to have been born out of, you know, successful capitalism. And I think having this massive foundation that is doing amazing stuff around the world, you know, we're just one of sort of, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of organizations that are affected positively by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I think that that is wonderful. And I think more and more large successful tech companies are building out these kind of um, organizations, foundations, charities that are trying to impact, you know, the world and people and projects in more philanthropic ways. Okay. I, as part of my research, I do research these things. That scares me. What did you find? Uh, nothing, nothing that like <laughs> uh, untoward. Um, but I did, I'm not a Twitter user. 
but uh, when you type your name into Google, some of your tweets pop up. Techhan. Yo, is that strong. it? Yeah, Techhan. Yeah, there tech you go. Hand, so you, you, you had a really interesting, uh, or you posted something interesting, and, and, and it was that having an inclusive culture and a diverse team are two different things. So um, I suppose I'm keen to understand, given you've had experience in both big corporates and um, small startups, um, what's your take on culture and experience within that realm? Yeah, I love that question because the more I experience different companies and even products, I just think that culture is probably the most important thing you can have in a company because it's what keeps people there and attracts them there in the first place. And so, you know, it's true, startups and corporates are very, very different. Corporates, the culture doesn't change. You know, when I joined Unilever through to when I left, the culture stayed exactly the same. And that's nice. You know what you're getting and it's secure, it's reliable, it's friendly. But at the end of the day, you know, in a corporate, people go home at the end of the day, like it's not their company unless you're on the senior leadership team or you're one of the massive shareholders. So there isn't that same huge commitment to the thing. Um, Whereas, you know, at Casha, we've grown probably... 100% in terms of our team in the last year. And so the culture from when I've joined, you know, to when I leave in a hypothetical future state, like will have changed massively because of the nature of what growth means and what building a company means. And I remember in my early days at Casha, we had a sort of town hall meeting with everyone involved and the co-founders had decided on what Casha's, you know, values are and what, how, the, how we treat each other and these kind of things. And so in a startup, you're deciding that, you're creating that for yourselves. And that's the big difference between a corporate and a startup. In a startup, you actually can craft that. Like I have had a part in crafting that for Casha in a way that I never could have at Unilever. And that is rewarding and people have more buy-in because you're building the thing, you're building the culture. Um, but I think the big challenge for a lot of startups that is a global thing is, you know, how can you maintain what is often a really positive culture in the early days, as you start to scale and have more layers of leadership and structure, how can you maintain the the beauty of the culture and kind of keep going back to that and reestablishing that as also you get many new people and so on. So I think that they're very, very different. And I think that that is just a really challenging thing and a curious thing to think about is like work cultures and startups and how you can preserve that as, Mm. as they scale. Yeah, and then I think an interesting concept is how do you not create an echo chamber? So you're still building the good culture, but, you know, introducing things like diverse um, opinions and perspectives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast. I could talk about that (laughs) for such a long time. All right, I'm keen to kind of draw it to a close. So I've got a couple of questions to to sort of uh, round it out. So... um, it's a two-part question. What's the best piece of advice anyone has ever given you? And what's next for Hannah in 2020? That's a good one. So, hmm, I don't know if this was advice or a quote. I think it's probably both, but I love it. And I always come back to it, which is don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. I think I probably got the words muddled, but that I love that. Like, just don't always ask. If you can do stuff, just do it. And yeah, asking for forgiveness and not for permission. I think that's the right way around. But I love that and I really stick by that. And a lot of my roles 
And, you know, personal and professional successes have come from that, like being a little bit outrageous and something great coming off the back of it, you know, asking for something that maybe hasn't been asked for before. And I think that good things always come, opportunities always come when you push. So that's that. And then what's next for me? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that social enterprise is a wonderful space and I love it. And, you know, I've been working in a social enterprise in East Africa. And I think that there's some really cool stuff happening in the UK as well. So, you know, social enterprise, also sustainable um, consumerism is you know, we're missing the mark right now and it's so necessary. So I think that there's so much work to be done on that and thinking about how we can build brands or, you know, maybe not build brands, like improve current brands or build processes or services that help people be more mindful and sustainable when they are buying things. So I'm curious about sustainable shopping and social enterprise. So who knows where I'll end up. That was really good. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Tim. Cheers. There you go. That's the episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Before I go, another shout out to my sponsor for this episode, LTV Plus. If you're looking to grow your brand internationally and you want to outsource your customer experience in any time zone and language, then check them out at ltvplus.com. And remember, if you use the promo code EMPTYBASKET2020, you'll get 10% off your first three months. And yeah, finally, uh, if you're into the podcast, please support it. Please share, please like, please download, please tell your friends, and I'll see you next time. Uh